Chapter 3, 1910-1920 Overview World War I shattered the world's idol in 1914. Kreil and Lauer went to France as early as 1915 to care for the wounded as part of a volunteer ambulance corps. When America joined the war in 1917, the three partners joined the army and rounded up colleagues and nurses to form what was called the Lakeside Unit after Lakeside Hospital. They were called upon to staff a base hospital outside the city of Rouen, France. Kreil's team landed in France on March 25, 1917. They marched into history as the very first unit of the U.S. Army to enter Europe after Congress declared war. The war was an adventure for the three partners. Kreil got a job that allowed him to travel up and down the front, handling interesting cases. He established new methods of pain relief using gas and injectable analgesics. The partners introduced new ways of organizing army hospitals and were impressed by military medicine. They liked the specialization and collaboration. They admired military efficiency and organization. Late at night, Bunts and Kreil sat around the stove and talked. They had long walks in the woods around the base, within earshot of the guns. This was where, as Kreil said later, they dreamed dreams. Tested in Battle As the Cleveland practice expanded in the early 1900s, Dr. Harry Sloan, a surgeon, was added to the staff, as was Dr. John Osmond, who was sent to the Mayo Brothers Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, to observe newly developed radiologic techniques. Osmond returned to establish, in 1913, the Cleveland Group's first X-ray department. Dr. Thomas Shoup also joined the staff as an associate of Lauer in urology. A number of other rock-solid employees came to the Osborne Building Office in this decade. They included Amy Rowland, editorial department, William Brownlow, art and photography, Lillian Grundy's outpatient nursing, and Mary Slattery, patient accounts, financial department. All became leaders of their teams after Cleveland Clinic was formed, and there is more about them later in this account. At this time, Kreil was helping to form the American College of Surgeons, whose purposes were to improve the standards of surgical practice in the United States and Canada, as well as to provide postgraduate education, improve ethics, raise the standards of care in hospitals, and educate the public about medical and surgical problems. In 1914, Europe was ablaze with war. In December of that year, Kreil, who was then chief surgeon at Lakeside Hospital, was asked by Clevelander Myron Herrick, then ambassador to France, to organize a team to work in France. Kreil accepted, for even at that time he realized that the United States would be drawn into the war and that experience in military surgery would be valuable. Kreil's World War I service had two distinct episodes. The first took place at Herrick's request in 1914, when Kreil sailed to France on the Lusitania, a year before it was sunk by a German torpedo, and worked as a civilian volunteer in the Ambulance Américaine, taking care of French casualties in a former high school building in Naïs-Saucine. 
This period of service lasted three months, during which Kreil, Lauer, and their 12-member team of Clevelanders impressed the French with their innovative approaches to blood transfusion and nitrous oxide anesthesia. They saw some unusual cases, including a rare opportunity to operate directly on the heart. It happened like this. Lauer was called on to care for a French soldier who had been shot in the chest. A fluoroscope was wheeled over, and Lauer saw a bullet lodged in the patient's heart, rotating with every heartbeat. Lauer didn't hesitate to operate. An assistant held the beating heart in his hand while Lauer extracted the bullet. After what Lauer described as a stormy convalescence, the patient fully recovered and rejoined his unit. The partner's more substantial episode of service began in 1917, after the U.S. officially entered the conflict. Kreil and a large group of doctors, nurses, and aides from Lakeside Hospital volunteered to go to France. There they established what was called a base hospital, an organizational model developed by Kreil in concert with the Red Cross. Kreil and the Lakeside Unit arrived in France as officers, nurses, and enlisted personnel of the U.S. Army. When the United States entered the war, the Lakeside Unit, formerly known as U.S. Army Base Hospital No. 4, was the first detachment of the American Expeditionary Forces to arrive in France, taking over a British general hospital near Rouen on May 25, 1917. Kreil was the hospital's clinical director, but later was given a broader assignment as director of the Division of Research for the American Expeditionary Forces, a post that permitted him to move about and visit the stations wherever the action was. Rain, Blood, Death The contrast between the practice in Cleveland and the partner's work on the front was stark. During the Third Battle of Ypres, also known as Passchendaele, Lauer and a team of nurses, including Lillian Grundy's and Mary Jane Roche, worked for 22 consecutive hours, performing 39 operations on one table with a single crew, caring for both Allied and German casualties. According to Lauer, the surgeries initially were clean affairs, but as the day wore on, they became a stinking, putrid mess of cutting and slashing. At the end of their shift, the team rested six hours and went back to work on the steady streams of wounded. I have been operating on twelve-hour shifts here, wrote Kreil. One hundred and twenty cases are waiting for operation this morning. In one night I had sixty deaths. Rain, rain, mud, blood, blood, death. All day, all night we hear the incessant tramp of troops, Troops coming, wounded coming back. Lauer was with Kreil in the lakeside unit, and soon Bunce, a reservist, was ordered to Camp Travis, Texas, leaving only Sloan and Osmond to keep the practice going. Both were able to pay the office expenses, but Bunce, concerned about the future, wrote to Lauer in France as follows. I feel very strongly that we ought to hold the office together at all hazards, not only for ourselves, but for the younger men who have been with us and whose future will depend largely on having a place to come back to. If Sloan and Osmond go, I think we could at least keep Miss Slattery and Miss Van Spiker. It would be quite an outlay for each of us to ante up our share for keeping the office from being occupied by others, 
but I, for one, would be glad to do it. We haven't so very many years left for active work after this war is over, and it would seem to be almost too much to undertake to start afresh in new offices, and the stimulus and friendship of our old associations mean much more than money to me. Bunce succeeded Lauer as commanding officer of the hospital near Rouen in August 1918. After the armistice on November 11, 1918, activities at the base hospital gradually subsided, tensions eased, and soldiers found time to engage in non-military pursuits and conversations. The long and friendly association of the three Cleveland surgeons is apparent in the following letter written in December 1918 and addressed to Lauer in Cleveland from Bunce in France. It's getting around Christmas time, and while I know this won't reach you for a month, yet I just want to let you know that we are thinking of you and wishing we could see you. Kreil has been here for a couple of weeks, but left again for Paris a few days ago, and evenings he and I have foregathered about the little stove in your old room, leaving Kreil's door open wide enough to warm his up too, and there we have sat like two old grand army of the Republic relics, smoking and laughing, telling stories, dipping back into even our boyhood days, and laughing often till the tears rolled down our cheeks. It has been a varied life we three have had, and filled with trials and pleasures without number. I have dubbed our little fireside chats the Arabian Nights, and often we have been startled when the coal gave out and the fire died down that it was long past midnight and time for antiques to go to bed. During those nocturnal chats at Rouen, an idea that eventually led to the founding of Cleveland Clinic took shape. The military hospital experience impressed these men with the efficiency of an organization that included every branch or specialty of medicine and surgery. They recognized the benefits that could be obtained from cooperation by a group of specialists. Before their return to the United States, they began to formulate plans for the future. A New Partner and the Seeds of the Clinic Kreil and Lauer's great plans were vague at first and growing vaguer. In 1918, as Kreil sailed back to America, his busy mind had moved on to another notion, reorganizing and moving Lakeside Hospital somewhere to the east of its current location. But Lauer, who had preceded Kreil back to Cleveland, was possessed by the idea that they needed to start their own hospital where they could be their own bosses. Lauer hopped on a train to meet Kreil in New York and fan the embers of their old dream. But Kreil was still cool. Bunce and Kreil returned to Cleveland early in 1919 and were once more united with Lauer in their Osborne Building offices. They began to rebuild their interrupted surgical practices and soon found themselves as busy as they had been before the war. Ultimately, it was the feisty Kreil's continuing clashes with the Lakeside Hospital Board of Trustees that finally convinced him that Lauer was right they needed a place where they could be their own masters. Although the military hospital was used as a model for their future plan, elements of the pattern were furnished also by Mayo Clinic, founded by close professional friends. Bunce, Kreil, and Lauer were surgeons, 
and in order to develop a broader field of medical service, they resolved to add an internist to organize and head a department of medicine. They were fortunate to obtain the enthusiastic cooperation of Dr. John Phillips, who was at that time a member of the faculty of the Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He, too, had served as a captain in the medical corps during the war and held the same broad concept of what might be accomplished by a clinic organization. Phillips was born in 1879 on a farm near Welland, Ontario, Canada. He was a quiet, serious-minded youth who nevertheless had a keen sense of humor. After obtaining his teacher's certificate, he taught for three years in a district school. He then entered the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, where in 1903 he received his Bachelor of Medicine degree with honors. After graduation, he served for three years as an intern and a resident in medicine at Lakeside Hospital in Cleveland, where he met Kreil. He then entered practice as an associate in the office of Dr. E. F. Cushing, professor of pediatrics at Western Reserve. During the years before the founding of Cleveland Clinic, Phillips held assistant professorships in both medicine and therapeutics at the Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Simultaneously, he had hospital appointments at Babies Dispensary and Hospital and Lakeside Hospital. He was also consulting physician to St. John's Hospital. Phillips had a large private and consulting practice, and was highly regarded for his ability as a clinician and teacher in internal medicine and the diseases of children. In 1920, most private physicians did not like the idea of group practice. Some felt that the large resources available to a group might give them an unfair competitive advantage. Many were openly critical of the concept and might have attempted to block the establishment of Cleveland Clinic if the founders had not been so highly regarded in the medical community. All were professors in one or more of the Cleveland medical schools. Kreil was a major national and international figure in surgery and in national medical organizations. Lauer was already well known nationally as a urologic surgeon. Phillips had a solid local and national reputation in internal medicine, and Bunce's professional and personal reputation was of the highest order. As previously noted, Bunce, Kreil, and Lauer had all been presidents of the Academy of Medicine, and Phillips was the president-elect. The founders' reputation was not based solely on their role in the medical schools. It also was well established in the community hospitals. They held appointments at Cleveland General, University, City, St. Alexis, St. Vincent Charity, Lutheran, St. John's, Lakeside, and Mount Sinai hospitals. Moreover, many of the community's business leaders were their patients and friends. It would have been difficult to stand in the way of any legitimate enterprise that these physicians decided to organize. This point is underscored by a thumbnail sketch of their personalities as Kreil's son, Dr. George Kreil Jr., remembered them. Kreil was the dynamo of the group, imaginative, creative, innovative, and driving. It is possible that some considered him inconsiderate of others in his overriding desire to get things done. For this reason, and because he occasionally was premature in applying to the treatment of patients the principles learned in research, he had enemies as well as supporters. 
Yet most of his contemporaries would have readily admitted that Kreil was one of the first surgeons in the world to apply physiologic research to surgical problems, that he was one of the country's leaders in organizing and promoting medical organizations such as the American College of Surgeons, of which he became the president, and that it was largely as a result of Kreil's energy, prestige, and practice that the Cleveland Clinic was founded. If Kreil was the driver, Lauer was the brake. He was a born conservative, even to the point of the keyhole size of his surgical incisions. No one but he could operate through them. His assistants could not even see into them. He was a technician of consummate skill and an imaginative pioneer in the then new field of urology. Lauer was also a perfect treasurer. He checked on every expenditure, thus compensating for Kreil's tendency to disregard the clinic's cash position. Later in life, Dr. Lauer even went around the buildings in the evenings, turning out lights that were burning needlessly. He was no miser, but his conservatism afforded a perfect balance to Kreil's over-enthusiasm. Despite the differences in their personalities, no one ever saw them quarrel. I never knew Bunce as well as the others, for he died early, but I do recall that he never, in my presence at least, displayed the exuberant type of humor that Kreil and Lauer did. I have seen the latter two almost rolling on the floor in laughter as they reminisced on how they dealt with some ancient enemy, but I could not imagine Bunce doing that. He had the presence and dignity that one associates with the image of an old-time senator. Bunce was invaluable in our association, my father once told me. He was the one that gave it respectability. Phillips, like Bunce, died early, so I knew him only as my childhood physician rather than as a personal friend. My impression was of a man who was silent, confident, and imperturbable. I am sure that his patients and colleagues shared this confidence in him, and that was why he was able to organize a successful department of internal medicine. The Idea Gels Although the personalities of the clinic's founders were so different from one another, there were common bonds that united them. All had served in the military, all had taught in medical schools, all were devoted to the practice of medicine. As a result of these common backgrounds and motivations, there emerged a common ideal, an institution in which medicine and surgery could be practiced, studied, and taught by a group of associated specialists. To create it, the four founders began to plan an institution that would be greater than the sum of its individual parts. Among those individual parts would be nurses without whose aid, Lauer once wrote, such success as I have had would not be possible. Sixty-four nurses had packed their bags, left their homes and families, and followed Kreil and Lauer to war-ravaged France. Many of them had graduated from Lakeside Hospital's nursing school, later known as the Francis P. Bolton School for Nursing, and worked with the two surgeons at Lakeside. When they returned from the war, many of the nurses went to work in Kreil and Lauer's new organization. They included Lillian Grundy's, a surgical nurse from the pre-clinic office, who went on to become the clinic's first head of ambulatory nursing and a heroic caregiver in the clinic disaster of 1929. Another was nurse Emma Barr, who served as the clinic's operating supervisor. 
Also on board were pioneering nurse anesthetists Margaret Lane and Edith Morgan and private duty nurse Flora Short, who went on to work at the clinic, and Agatha Hodgins, founder and first president of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, and Mary Jane Roche. These brave nurses came to the new clinic steeled by war and ready to act as a unit for their patients.